don't think that I have to explain to you that Sabbath rest is a central tenet of Judaism. According to the Talmud and the Midrash, quote, if you wish to destroy the Jewish people, abolish their Sabbath first. Religious Jews refrain from plowing, sowing, reaping, kneading, baking, spinning, weaving, sowing, tanning, building, demolishing, transporting, slaughtering, and writing on the Sabbath. As I mentioned last week, they engineer their elevators to stop at every floor so they don't have to push the button on the Sabbath day. At numerous points in his ministry, Jesus collided with the Jews over Sabbath observance. That hostility was so sharp that the Jews sought to kill Jesus. In their view, Jesus was a rebel against God's law. Why such hostility? And actually, is there a lesson in all this for us who might contemplate how we could better observe Sundays, which we think of in some ways as our own Sabbath, a day of rest? Before turning back to John chapter 5, where Jesus defends his attitude toward the Sabbath, let's turn to Matthew chapter 12. And let's just notice how frequently Sabbath observance was a defining issue in Jesus' ministry. In the first half of Matthew's gospel, Jesus ministers throughout Galilee. He teaches in the synagogues. He performs extraordinary miracles. By the time we reach chapter 12, the battle lines have been drawn. The Jewish leadership takes up a firm position against Jesus. And in that context, let's begin reading with verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence? which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would have condemned the guiltless. You would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, we will not work through this passage in detail except to say this. In almost a single breath, Jesus describes himself as both greater than the temple and greater than the Sabbath. Can you imagine that? For the devout Jew, the Sabbath was the most sacred day. The temple was the most sacred place. And Jesus deliberately asserted his superiority over both. To call himself Lord of the Sabbath was nothing short of a declaration of deity. 
And observe how the story continues in verse 9. And went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep that falls into a pit on the Sabbath will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Notice that it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out. And it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Well, would you notice just how deliberate Jesus was about healing here on the Sabbath? Now, presumably, Jesus could have waited one more day to heal a man with a deformed hand. We have no indication this man is in any pain. This is not an emergency room situation requiring immediate surgery, a blood transfusion. The man is not on life support. His hand had simply never developed properly as he matured into manhood. The fact is, even in our own day, surgeons rarely perform any kind of surgery except emergency surgery on Sundays or even on Saturdays. They just don't do it. So why not wait one more day? Jesus' answer is blunt. The law does not forbid us for doing good for someone on the Sabbath. And now let's turn to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13 records for us yet another collision between the Jews and Jesus on the Sabbath. Luke 13, verses 10 through 17, we have a description of another Sabbath healing and its controversial aftermath. Luke 13 and verse 10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant, Because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. And the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Let's make two observations about this passage. First, once again, Jesus healed on the Sabbath, even though the woman's situation was not a life or death emergency room type situation. She'd had her condition for 18 years. Could Jesus have just waited one more day? 
And second, notice how the synagogue ruler invokes the Genesis creation week. Correctly, I think. There we're told God labored for six days and rested in the seventh. That's where the whole Sabbath idea comes from. He infers from that that anyone seeking healing on the Sabbath was wrong, which I think is incorrect. But again, notice how he invokes the creation week. And now turn forward one chapter to Luke 14, and let's read the first five verses. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Would you picture this scene? Here are these Pharisees like hungry lions ready to spring on their prey. They're looking for a single mistake, a single issue to pin on Jesus. And Jesus knows it. And so before healing the man, Jesus just throws down the gauntlet. Are you going to claim that what I'm about to do is unlawful? Well, clearly, Sabbath observance was a major point of contention between the Jews and Jesus. With all that in mind, let's turn back now to John chapter 5. And as you turn, I will simply point out that the passages that we just read chronologically come after the healing of the man at Bethesda. That's crucial. Everything we just read comes after the event recorded here in John chapter 5. The healing at Bethesda is the first event recorded in the four Gospels concerning a major controversy between Jesus and the Jewish leadership over the Sabbath. In other words, this is a passage where it all began. So I read those later passages so that you understand how inflammatory the Sabbath issue would become after John 5. But again, right here in John 5 is where the whole issue erupted. So here's a really crucial question. Who deliberately ignited these Sabbath controversies? And we saw the answer last week. It was Jesus himself. Jesus took the initiative. At the pool of Bethesda, Jesus met an ill man on the Sabbath. But why is Jesus even there on the Sabbath? Jesus brazenly walks up to this man in verse 6, and he initiates a conversation. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Jesus initiates. This man did not come looking for Jesus. In fact, he later betrays Jesus. According to verse 5, this man had been an invalid for some 38 years. Well, surely Jesus could have waited one more day, but he didn't. After 38 years, 
Jesus is not willing to let another day pass. Again, this is not an emergency room situation where if Jesus doesn't act today, he's dead. It's not what's going on here. He healed the man deliberately on the Sabbath. And he even told the man, take up your bed and walk. A clear violation of Jewish scruples. In fact, as you read on, the Jews don't even care about the miracle. They care about the fact that he's carrying his bed on the Sabbath. And look at all the controversy that Jesus created. Look at verse 9. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Again, Jesus instigated this. And look at the result, verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Persecuting Jesus! Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So, what do you think? In the midst of a firestorm of opposition, will Jesus back down? He's like a politician seeking only to garner votes, and he makes a mistake. Oh no, let me back off. Is that what Jesus does? Does Jesus say, well, from now on, I'll just kind of avoid the Sabbath day? No, clearly not. The earlier passages that we just read tell the events that happened after John 5. So whatever Jesus was doing here in John 5, he kept it up afterwards. And far from backing down, observe what Jesus says in verse 17. This is astonishing. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. And do you realize what Jesus just said? He just made two radical claims. Number one, God the Father is working on the Sabbath. What? This has got to be some new form of blasphemy. God doesn't work on the Sabbath. Every Jew knows that, right? Didn't God rest on the seventh, on the seventh day? Didn't God set up that pattern of rest from the first week of creation in all of human history? And didn't God command us to imitate that same behavior when he gave us the law? How dare Jesus claim that God is working the Sabbath? And then secondly, notice that Jesus implies that he was, in fact, equal with God. It was perfectly appropriate for him to work on the Sabbath because, quote, my father is working. He just equated himself with God. So how did the Jews respond? Verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. My guess is most of us, if not all of us, realize that Jesus had several controversies with the Jews over the Sabbath. However, do you realize that Jesus deliberately instigated all this controversy? And do you realize that these controversies brought death threats against Jesus that erupted early in his ministry and several more times through his ministry? We sometimes think of Jesus coming to Jerusalem in the triumphal entry and they greeted him and then turned on him. That's not what happened. The Galileans brought him to Jerusalem to the city gates and welcomed him, but the Jews inside were very angry at Jesus. They'd been plotting for years 
to see him executed. And it all goes back here to John chapter 5. He is a Sabbath breaker. Jesus does not back down. In fact, Jesus is just going to blow this controversy up like wind spreading a forest fire. So I want to know, why is Jesus so bold? And in fact, in the Jewish eyes, so offensive in verse 17 when he claimed, my father is working from now until now and I am working. That, that answer that Jesus gave is a calculated attempt to disrupt the whole Jewish worldview, their culture, their theology, their customs. Why is Jesus doing this? Now, originally, I planned to preach all the way down through verse 24 this morning, but I suspect that it really will be to our benefit to really pause on verse 17 and the aftermath, verse 18, and to really just come to terms with what Jesus is saying. How are we supposed to think about Sabbath work or Sabbath rest or, in our case, Sunday? And I'm not trying to draw too close a parallel between those. That's not really my point this morning. But I want to know, how can we avoid the error of the Jewish leadership while at the same time acknowledge that Sabbath rest was instituted by God? Not in the Mosaic Law, friends, but in the Creation Week. Well, clearly, something's gone wrong in the Jewish mind. Why did Jesus believe it necessary to come along and deliberately disrupt their Sabbath customs, not once, not twice, but again and again and again? And I wonder why, for the sake of peace or respect for a Jewish culture, didn't Jesus just wait one more day and heal? I mean, there is a place for respecting people's culture. If you look at Jesus' Sabbath healings, in no case was Jesus dealing with a life or death emergency room situation. If I were a Christian surgeon, I would schedule any of these people that Jesus healed for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So why is Jesus willing to stir up so much Sabbath controversy to the point that the Jews want to persecute him and kill him? And again, the hostility that erupts here in Jerusalem in chapter 5 can be traced right through John's gospel, right through to a Roman cross. So what is the lesson in all this for us? Well, let me get at it through three questions. Three questions, and I really want these questions not only to help us understand John's gospel, to really help us understand what we ought to be doing in the Lord's day. First question. Did God rest on the seventh day? I suspect we know the answer, but let's turn to Genesis 2 and let's actually read the words of Scripture. We, like the Jews of Jesus' day, take the opening chapters of Genesis as authoritative and foundational for our whole outlook on life. Genesis 1 takes us through the first six days of creation. And chapter 2 tells us precisely what happened on the seventh day. Verse 1, Genesis 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. 
And the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God stopped creating. God labored for six days, and God rested on the seventh. There's just there's no, no doubt about that. And by the way, did you know that this is where we get our pattern for a seven-day week, which we've seen all through human history? When humans, ancient and modern, have set about to measure time, they appeal to astronomical phenomena. The waxing and waning of the moon, the rotation of the earth on its axis every 24 hours, the earth's circumnavigation of the sun every 365 days, even our months were traditionally derived from seasons of the year and planet cycles derived from our solar system. You look to the heavens and you figure out time. However, there is nothing in astronomy that gives us a seven-day week. Did you know this? It's not out there. Yet human civilization is built on the seven-day pattern derived from the Bible. And when godless civilizations like that of the French Revolution have tried to circumvent the seven-day week, they've met with disaster. The French tried it out, and it failed. They tried a ten-day week. It collapsed. It doesn't work. There is a seven-day rhythm to our human psyche that is only explained by the Bible. And that leads me to a second question. Here it is. Was God's Sabbath rest precedent setting for us? Okay, crucial question. Was that seventh day rest precedent setting for us? Well, just read the next verse. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. That word holy refers to a unique, a special day. It was God who established a special day from the beginning of time. Sabbath rest did not begin at Mount Sinai. God established a unique day in the creation week. Now, having said that, let's turn to Exodus chapter 20, where we find the Ten Commandments. And we're all very familiar with the Ten Commandments. We all recognize the Ten Commandments are really sort of the heart of the Old Testament law delivered at Sinai. And I think we all know that the Ten Commandments include a commandment concerning Sabbath observance. Have you ever noticed just how thorough this command is? And why this command was given? Exodus 20, verse 8. God gives a lot more attention to this command than some of the others. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, to keep it special, to keep it unique. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. Why? For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, 
and rest in the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, friends, there are many, many Christians who just get up in arms about keeping the Ten Commandments post in the courtrooms and in, the, and in schools, right? You've heard this. I, I do find it somewhat ironic that those same Christians typically don't put them up in their churches or their homes. Somewhat interesting. I also find it a little bit curious that some of those same Christians aren't really all that vocal about maintaining the Sabbath. Isn't that curious? We love the Ten Commandments. I mean, don't take them out of the courtroom, but Sabbath is uh, not a big deal. But let me just leave that aside for now. <laughs> okay. And observe very carefully why God gave this particular law. The law is rooted in the creation account. God says Sabbath rest is important because this was the pattern I established at the world's beginning. That's why it's important. I set the whole universe up this way. Sabbath observance, friends, was not a new law delivered at Sinai for the first time imposed upon the Hebrews who were finally liberated from Egypt. That's not what's going on here. Many of the Mosaic laws were like that. God brought them out of Egypt. He says, okay, these laws are for you right here, right now. Not everybody else, but for you. But this law was not like that. Sabbath observance goes all the way back to creation. In this sense, it's very much like the law against murder. The Ten Commandments do indeed, verse 13, prohibit murder. But so too does the creation account. Why? Because man is made in the image and likeness of God. So think of it this way. We've got to be just very, very cautious about just glibly dismissing God's law because we are no longer under the old covenant, right? We've got to be very careful about that because some of these laws were imposed long before Mount Sinai. We don't, stop, we don't start murdering people now because, oh, we're no longer under the Mosaic law, right? We don't start, start committing adultery now because we're no longer under the law. Now, wait a minute. There's things that God established from the beginning as normative for his creation from that moment forward. Some laws, again, were foundational, even foundational to the Mosaic law delivered at Sinai. And that, I think, is what's going on here. God is rooting this law in the creation account. And you can see an example of this by just turning back four chapters, Exodus 16. Let me show you very, some, something very interesting. Here we find the inauguration of the manna. And let's read verses 22 through 30. And as we read, notice how Sabbath observance is already expected of the people before they come to Sinai. It's already there. On the sixth day, Exodus 16, verse 22, on the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow was a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath, a unique day to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning. And Moses commanded them, and it did not stink. And there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws. See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. 
Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now, friends, isn't this very interesting? Here is Sabbath observance, and we haven't gotten to Sinai yet. Sabbath observance precedes the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. How far back does it go? It actually goes all the way back to creation. From the beginning, God set it up this way. All that to say, I think the data is pretty clear. God's seventh-day rest was, in some sense, precedent-setting for us. And it's no wonder the Jews tried to observe it very carefully. So with all that in mind, let's return to John 5. And let's ask this question. Why does Jesus just instigate a controversy over the Sabbath? What is Jesus doing? Why does he heal a man who had been sick for 38 years? Could he have just waited one more day? And again, why does he choose such inflammatory words in verse 17? My father is working until now, and I am working. What is Jesus talking about? Didn't God rest on the seventh day? Yes. And wasn't God's rest precedent-setting for us? Yes. So, again, why on earth did Jesus go to the Pool of Siloam, heal a sick person, and incite the Jews to persecute him for failing to rest on the Sabbath? And why does Jesus just keep on doing similar things on the Sabbath right through the end of his ministry? I suspect the passage is a bit enigmatic when you really take the Old Testament seriously. What we need at this point is a third question and a good answer to that question. A third question, I think, will help us avoid the error of Jewish leadership, the leadership that sought to kill Jesus. And I think this third question will help us avoid the error of legalism and understand, really, the spirit behind the law. And here's the question. Did God stop working entirely on the seventh day? Did God stop working entirely on the seventh day? Well, verse 17, my father is working until now, and I am working. Obviously, Jesus was working on the Sabbath. I mean, God was working the Sabbath. The truth is, when you read the creation account, God is actively creating all sorts of things for six days, but the seventh day he stops. What does that actually mean? Ever thought about this? Did God ever stop willing his creation into existence at every moment of time? Did God ever stop upholding the whole universe by his omnipotent power? Does God's spirit cease his work of conviction of sinful men on the seventh day? Does God ever take a day off from pursuing sinners? Does God's providence and his preservation cease every seventh day? You ever thought about David's beautiful description of his formation in his mother's womb? Psalm 139, 
David says, you formed me. You formed me. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's room. Do ultrasounds reveal that that process ceases every seventh day? Does God send rain on the just and the unjust? And does it ever rain on the Sabbath? Did God pour out his violent rain in Noah's day for 40 consecutive days and nights, including Sabbaths? And there's 40 consecutive days there, and God is raining down judgment. He's doing something on the Sabbath. Yes, it is true that manna from heaven ceased on the Sabbath. But are we told that the springs of water gushing from the rock cease on the Sabbath? God removes kings and God establishes kings. Has God ever toppled or inaugurated a king on the Sabbath? God's spirit comes for his children when they die. I was thinking this last week of Brother Gil Meisner, who passed away on Sunday, September 6, 2020, right here while we were celebrating communion. Did God's spirit come for Gil Meisner on the Lord's Day? Sure he did. The book of Hebrews tells us Jesus in his resurrection upholds all things by the word of his power. Think of all those whirling galaxies out there, all those electrons spinning around their nucleus. Think of all the breath of those billions of animals. It's all sustained by Jesus. He upholds it all every moment of time, seven days a week by the word of his power. And aren't you glad? If God ever stopped holding your atoms together, you would disintegrate in a moment. Well, I think you get the point. Yes, God rested on the Sabbath. And yes, that rest, I think, is precedent setting for us. Even before God gave the law, he rested. But friends, you've got to be very, very careful about taking that to an extreme When we take Sabbath observance to an extreme, we turn a perfectly good command into legalism. And that's what the Jews were doing. And it was damning people's souls and Jesus would have none of it. In the end, they were not actually concerned about Sabbath rest at all. They had a whole series of minute regulations that prevented any kind of work whatsoever. Regulations that became necessary for salvation. Regulations actually prevented people from doing good. And those things became necessary for salvation. But friends, the truth is your body, your body needs rest. But if your neighbor's ox is in a ditch, just go help him. On a Sunday. So yes, I think God's resting is in, in some way a, a pattern for us. Truth be told, we we need a holy day, do we not? We need a day in the week where we can just sort of pull back from everything else we're doing, recuperate, recharge, rekindle our passion for Christ. We need a day of fellowship. We need a day of encouragement. I mean, really, you you go without Sunday worship for a week or two, what does that do to your spirit? What does it do for you? You know, you know as well as I do. It, it, it's not long before you're in a lot of trouble. You, you just I, I think you do need a day that is dissimilar to the other days of your life. 
because we're all so busy. You're busy, I'm busy, we're all busy, we're all busy all the time, and the retirees are really busy, right? That's what you all tell me. You retire, you get even busier, all right? But do you not need a day where you can just pull back from it all and really just slow down and rest and worship? But should we go to the extreme and say, well, you can never help anyone on a Sunday? You can never do good on a Sunday? You can never pull your neighbor's ox out of the ditch? Should we go to that kind of extreme? I like to work in my yard. I like to dig holes in the ground and get dirty and plant plants. I don't typically do that on Sundays, though. It's like, you know what, I did that on Saturday. I'm not going to do that on Sunday. But some time ago, I was at home on a Sunday, and I looked across the street, and there was my neighbor, who's not a believer. And his pickup was backed up into his yard. He had these great big trees in the back of his truck. And I thought, how is he going to get those trees out of the truck, onto the ground, and get them into the hole? I thought, I don't think his wife has the strength to help him. It was a Sunday. I thought, you know what? I should go over there and help my neighbor get his ox out of the ditch or the tree out of the truck. Right? I didn't want to do that. I got really dirty. had to get all sweaty and shower. I personally don't do that. I mean, I don't plant trees in my yard on Sunday. But look, it was my neighbor and he needed some help. And I want to have a good relationship with him. So I went and dug a hole and picked up a 300-pound tree up out of the back of his truck with his help. And got in that hole and hurt my back and everything else. All right. <laughs> the fact is, we, you know, there is, there's, a, there's, a, there's a point to rest and fellowship and these kinds of things, but you, you just, you, you got to be very careful to take it to an extreme, against taking it to an extreme. Think about how much good that God has worked in your life on Sunday, or in the Jewish case, on the Sabbath. Has God not worked in your own heart? Do we actually not pray for that? God, would you work in my heart today? Well, wait a minute. God doesn't work on the Sabbath. God doesn't work on Sunday, right? No, God, would you work in my heart today? Ever think about that? The, the juxtaposition of those two ideas. Imagine a church member getting discharged from the hospital on a, on a Sunday. That happens. Can I go over and carry his bag down to his car for him and push the elevator button? Isn't that equivalent to Jesus just telling the man... At Bethesda, just take up your bed and walk home. Are you going to come along and just accuse me of violating the Sabbath because I helped the church member? When we were in Matthew 23, we observed a similar kind of extremism with the Pharisees. They literally tithe their mint and their dill and their cumin. That is, they tithe the tiniest produce from their fields. The law never required the Jews to tithe their herbs. And Jesus, if you recall, did not actually condemn them for tithing their herbs. That wasn't what he condemned. He essentially says, if you have a conviction about that kind of thing, well, just go do it. Go do it. Go tithe your herbs. These you ought to have done, he said. But then he added this, without omitting the weightier matters of the law. That's the crucial element. Don't omit the weightier matters. Well, what are the weightier matters? Jesus says justice, mercy, faithfulness. Would you just picture with me a Pharisee and he's got a little scalpel out and he's pridefully hovering over this pile of seeds and he's dissecting out a tithe. 10% of my seeds, 10% of my mint, 
and behind him lies the widow in the street. Behind him lies the orphan groveling in the street. Jesus will have none of that hypocrisy. Jesus says that is the kind of legalism that leads not to heaven but to hell. And friends, do you know the real problem with legalism? The real problem with legalism? Legalism is, in fact, law-breaking. That's the problem with it. Legalism is law-breaking. When you miss the whole point of the law, you violate the law. When you miss the whole point of holiness of the Lord because of your focus on minute ordinances, you actually violate the law of justice and mercy and faithfulness. The Pharisees were lawbreakers. They missed the whole point of mercy and justice and faithfulness. It's no wonder then that Jesus went out very deliberately and began healing people on the Sabbath. It's because the legalists have no understanding of mercy. Again, at Bethesda, they don't even care that the man just got healed. All they want to know is, why are you carrying your bed? It's all they're concerned about. Jesus, just help this man. We don't care about that. Why are you carrying your bed? They, in fact, were the lawbreakers because they had no knowledge of what was most important. The Jews had become so fixated on their own sense of self-righteousness fostered by scrupulous Sabbath observance they actually came to the point that they would rather murder Jesus than to see him restore a man with a withered hand or to raise the sick or to cure disease or to heal his creation. I mean, where's the mercy in that? His creation is broken all around him. He's healing it. Where's the mercy in this if they go after him and try to kill him? So friends, think of it this way. Wasn't the whole point of the seventh day of rest an opportunity to sort of sit back and actually enjoy the creation. Let me conclude with just, just an idea here about how we can really sort of apply this and think about Sunday rest. At the end of six days of labor, Genesis 1, God looked at everything that he made and God saw that it was very good. And when God saw it was all very good, then God rested. But when you look at it that way, you realize that what God was doing is that rest was a kind of delight. God stood back and he just delighted in his creation. He enjoyed his creation. God enjoyed his accomplishments. Isn't that interesting? Now, I am well aware that in this room we probably have believers who have different opinions and convictions about what you can or cannot do on the Lord's Day. And that's perfectly appropriate. My job is is not to impose my conscience on any of you. This to me is a Romans 14 issue because people have different consciences and Paul talks in Romans 14 about how we observe different days and Paul actually says, quote, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So I think all of us should look at what the text says and say, okay, what does this mean for me? My job is not to impose my convictions on you or my legalistic standards on you, not at all. All right? But can I just really maybe suggest this? What if we all agreed to sort of think of our resting, not in a legalistic sense, of pleasing God by law-keeping, but of delighting 
delighting in God, slowing down, leaving your busy schedules behind, delighting in God's creation. I, I rather enjoy a walk in the woods on a Sunday afternoon when it's not so hot. Maybe, maybe, maybe you don't want to do that. Fine, no problem. I like to go out and just sort of delight in everything that God made. My son finds these snakes, and it's hard to delight in them, but, you know, whatever. This is the curse, too. <laughs> you know, but just, just do something different and slow down and relax and enjoy what God has made. Delighting in the work that we have accomplished over the previous six days. Delighting in God's worship. We don't do this six days a week, but worship God on the Lord's day. Delighting in fellowship with God's people. We're all so busy. Six days a week, we're just really going at it. Step aside and delight with God's people. How about this? Delight in the food that we labored for all week long. I like food. I really like food. You know, good food on a Sunday is great. I like coffee. I drink one cup of coffee every day of the week except Sunday. I allow myself to. That's, you know, whatever. That's my, my personal conviction. You do with that what you want. All right? And most importantly, can we just delight in our salvation? It doesn't come by works of legalism. I was talking to Billy Beddingfield last week at his home and looking through some of the books on his shelf, and he pulled off one book, and the title struck me. Oh, what was it called now? <laughs> just for what was it? The Sab- Call the Sabbath a delight. That was it. There it is. He gave it to me to read this week. I didn't get to it this week. Maybe today it's the Sabbath. I can... Call the Sabbath a delight. How about that? How about that? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this delightful day that you have given to us where we can come apart from our busy schedules and, Lord, just delight in everything that you've done for us. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. All right. Well, I just keep going later and later, but we do want to go get some coffee. Is there coffee over there today? Karen's gone. Are we going to have coffee today? Is there... There's coffee. Okay, Marie. So... Okay, I got to get my second cup. All right, so why don't we? Uh, we'll have a song here at the end, and then we will. Uh, how about we start the eleven fifteen class at eleven twenty, and take some time and really delight in your relationship with other people today, and and get your second cup of coffee, and have a wonderful, wonderful Lord's Day, and get some rest this afternoon too, and have a good Father's Day, fathers. Okay.